Coming up on this week's show, a huge PlayStation 2 leak is out there. The rarest Neo Geo game found in a field. And we talk about making games for the Vectrex in 2021. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our brilliant friends at Bitmap Books. And stay listening if you're a fan of the Super Nintendo. We need to tell you about the unofficial SNES Pixel book very soon. And you can find out more about that and everything else on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast episode number 268. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to our weekly Geek Out session where we get our nostalgia on and reminisce about classic video games, the games we spent our childhoods playing, the companies behind them and the people that made them as well. And of course, we bring you up to date on everything that's been happening in the world of retro gaming and tech over the last seven days. You know, what I love about doing this show is just the pure variety of systems that we cover. But I know you in particular, Ravi, always get a little glimmer of excitement when we mention the Vectrex. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the Vectrex. And, you know, it's a system I never really had, so I'm a total noob when it comes to it. But we've got someone coming on today, Rob Jubber, who is absolutely fantastic. He did PlayStation development in the past, and uh, we've got some really funny stories about stuff like uh, Sabutio, uh, the game that he was <laughs> developing for the PlayStation, but also the Vectrex. You know, we talk total vectrex about the community he's actually developed uh, a cart called uh, player two which is basically two player games and they didn't exist on the vectrex before even though you had two controllers um he tells us about collecting tips and stuff like new pcbs so this is amazing because if you don't know about the vectrex it was um released by a uh, consumer general consumer electronics and then later milton bradley in 1982 and it was uh, on a 9-inch CRT, and it's a really unique system with this kind of vector graphic style, and it's just drawn on the CRT on this little 9-incher. And whenever we see them at, like, um, Expos, if we ever lose Ravi, he's generally hanging around the Vectrex machines. Yeah, <laughs> and, like, oh, it's just the aesthetic. It just, it, it's just something totally different. And, you know, we're used to sprites, and we're used to kind of seeing games displayed in a certain way. This is like it's from another planet. Yeah, so there is that game on there. It's like Night Racer or something I always see um, whenever I'm at shows. And yeah, there is something definitely mesmerising about that kind of vector look. I think it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, what they envisioned the future to be back in like the, you know, the late 70s. It always reminds me of films like The Last Starfighter. Yeah. You know, like the graphics in that and uh, like Alien when they're like looking at like the sonar scanner and stuff. It always always reminds <laughs> me about that, especially because of like you could get like a uh, coloured sheets for the Vectrex as well that you'd put over as, as graphics, wouldn't you? Mm. Yeah, like, yeah. The colour of things overlays, as well. Aren't you? Yeah, overlays, yeah. So yeah, but like like Dan says, Ravi's always standing there near one, drooling over them, you know, thinking about remortgaging his house to buy one. <laughs> well, after this interview, I definitely want to get one. Like, I, I know I keep talking about it, but like, I'm going to take the plunge now. And when you see them as well, then they look quite big because they've got a CRT when you look online. When you see one in real life, it's actually a really nice little compact unit and like the controllers actually fit into the unit and it's, oh, it's just beautiful. It's like, it's only about as big as an NES if you were to stand it upright, isn't it? Yeah, and it's yeah. also got a very limited life. So, like, you know, it was out and then it 
wasn't released anymore. So there's like less and less Vectrexes in the world now. So we talk <laughs> about how to kind of, you know, keep them going. And uh, they're, they're pretty much a nightmare to kind of, um, you know, fix and repair. And uh, I think every Vectrex owner has two or three. You owe it to retro gaming now, Ravi, to buy one and keep it in good condition. There you go. Yeah, that's it. There's yeah, your excuse. I, uh, keep the baby alive. <laughs> you know what I love as well is, you know, Robin's actually, his game is made for it. It's a compendium of two-player games for the Vectrex. And actually, the controllers for the Vectrex themselves are, like, you know, really pricey and hard to find. So it's actually quite a niche market he's gone for there. Yeah, definitely. But it's like a full <laughs> proper release as well. You know, mm. it comes on car. It's It's got the manual and the box and everything. And we talk about the kind of nightmare he spent doing it because there is now a development language for the Brex. Vectrex, but he didn't know about that when he started the project, so he was just coding it by hand, you know. And also, he was involved in you know other titles like you mentioned, Rat Attack on the uh, the PlayStation and Malice. You know, we'll talk more about in the interview. That's kind of it's one of those legendary games that just took forever to come out. I think it's kind of you know second only to um, Duke Nukem Forever in terms of having quite a troubled development history. So um, we've got some interesting stories about that. And of course, developing for the Vectrex and the community in 2021 with Rob Jubber. He's our special guest on the show in around 15 minutes from now. Now, of course, we cover all kinds of classic systems on the show, including the Super Nintendo. Now, our very good friends at Bitmap Books, if you're a fan of the SNES, they've got something you need to check out. Yeah, man, this is awesome. This is the unofficial SNES pixel book by Bitmap Books. This is 272 pages that celebrates the golden age of 16-bit gaming with Nintendo's pretty much, their, in my opinion, their most popular home console and maybe my favourite console of all time. Now, this is absolutely awesome. We've got over 10,000 pixel pictures in like absolute crisp images. All your favourite SNES games alongside descriptions of the games all bundled together. You know, we've got your RPGs, you've got your platformers, your sideline shooters, all the classics, including Street Fighter 2, Super Mario World, one of my favourites, Super Castlevania 4, all in one compendium. And these books, man, these are like, you know, if you're thinking of your birthday or your Christmas or something like that, and you're a retro mm. gamer, your mum always gets you like one of those like tacky handheld things from B&M, man. Get on this website, <laughs> send them this link to these book, man, these books. These books are absolutely awesome. They're so cool. They sit on your shelf. You just pull them out. I've got the Sega Master System one. I absolutely love it. You know, they're just the quality of them. I can't stress enough how nice they are. But yeah, the Super Nintendo one is absolutely beautiful. My favourite console. Yeah, and I think, you know, like you said, then the we can't really put forward enough the quality of these books. Mm. I mean, they're all beautifully presented. And, you know, this is like a real preservation and yeah. a love letter to the Super Nintendo. So um, definitely have a look. Of course, support the Retro Hour by supporting our sponsors and uh, check them out on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Now, it's quite interesting this week to see another massive retro gaming leak that's out there that this time is not related to Nintendo. Yeah, this we, we, we've actually, we're a bit PlayStation heavy on this episode, aren't we, Ravi? But um, <laughs> it, it is all relevant. It's a way full sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> it? It's funny. So this is the first story about PlayStation. So this is massive. This is This is one of the biggest leaks I can think of, you know, recently. It's probably as as big as the Nintendo leak. We've mentioned these guys before. What are they called? Is it Hidden Palace? Yeah, yeah, that's Hid- it. Hid- yeah. Hidden Palace have released this. Um, this is a massive leak of seven hundred and forty-seven prototype games leaked from the P- from the PlayStation Two. So this is like all the different versions of like games that came out essentially, or games that never came out. It's a complete mis- mismatch of like of all different like 
you know, different translations of games and stuff like that. But essentially, this is from one guy's collection who spent the last couple of years kind of, you know, buying and getting a hold of from like, you know, ex-PlayStation developers and stuff, all the prototypes and stuff. Well, I've got some details here. So it's it's called Project Deluge. It's got its its own kind of name. And a lot of these titles are like prototype versions of Mm. games that are out there, retail versions. But, um, you know, they're the prototypes, so they may have levels in there that weren't in there mm-hmm. later on. They may have assets that have been removed or changed. So I think this is going to be really interesting once fans get through this and kind of break down what's in these games. Um, it's going to, you know, bring up some new information and uh, maybe cool little facts and stuff. You know, all the fact hunters on YouTube will be really excited about this one. Yeah. Um, looking at it, you're right. It was, it was actually from um, the old... Q&A department. Um, yeah. So they were backups and it was one person, you're right, who single-handedly uh, took possession of these and uh, kind of copied every single one. Mm-hmm. Now, they had a huge amount of data. So they asked a um, friend of the show, Jason Scott, from the Internet Archive to take a look at it. And this data was just full of retail versions as well. You know, the the, the prototypes were kind of hidden Mixed, in it with, yeah, with, hidden with a load of stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. so they ended up creating a, a program that would look for the codes on it and the metadata and then actually remove all the retail versions mm. and create this absolutely crazy list. It brings it to a total of 860 gigabytes of data. But what wow. gets me is they're saying the 747 games is only a part of it it's not all of them that's just what they've released so far apparently there's even more out there like thousands of more for them yeah there might be half built ones that haven't been you know found with this tool like this tool's just kind of scraped it and then manually you might be able to find some more it's a mad archive there's a huge list here that i sent you earlier this is the thing that you were saying you know the game alias uh every you know that's definitely dan's favorite game but the game alias there's like 20 versions of it on there because it's like the different builds of the game, which is crazy. So how many PlayStation 2 games was there? It was a good couple of thousand. If you got to think there might be like 10 versions, 10 prototypes of like Final Fantasy X-2, you know, for people to go through. Um, so yeah, like I, I'm expecting them to probably keep releasing like hundreds and hundreds more of these. And there's like, also it looks like there's a lot of preview versions in there. So there's like versions that went out to the press. Yeah, review, the, review copies. And, the E3 uh, versions as well of like Crash Bandicoot and stuff like that. It's mad. It's amazing to see. And, you know, what a momentous effort and kind of contacting this one person and then that one person preserving it all. Uh, fantastic. <laughs> He's just there like, yeah, I've got like a thousand gigabytes of PlayStation Just, just imagine how much it costs <laughs> in, uh, in CDs. Oh, <laughs> I'm God, burning yeah. that. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> It is cool, though, because, I mean, obviously the PlayStation 2, the biggest selling console in history. Mm. And, you know, when you get a glimpse into all these different versions of the games, because you always saw it in magazines or, you know, around that area, you'd read it on websites as well, um, kind of looks at new games that were coming out and then often they'd be released and they'd be totally different. And I remember a lot of times looking at games and thinking, oh, you know, it looked much better in the preview. So it's going to be interesting. Even just, you know, you're talking games like, you know, Spyro and Crash Bandicoot, kind of seeing how they changed over time and what those early ideas were for these titles, I think, you know, that's fascinating, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's amazing. And, um, like, you know, was it was it CDs or, or was it DVD on the PlayStation? Like, this shows uh, my, my lack of knowledge, you know. <laughs> 
Yeah, it maybe was both. They were. I think some some of them would be they'd have the black, you know, the, like the PS One on one side, you know, on the the reverse, and then some of them with DVD, weren't they? Yeah, like blue, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. But oh, I think wow. yeah. I think after a first couple of years, they all they were all DVD, weren't they? Imagine also, like you know, they're talking about some of the big localization ports as well and stuff. Maybe there might be translations that haven't been on other versions of games that you they could then implement later on. Like they might be able to take some of these features and do you know, ROM hack style fan build kind of new versions of these titles. <laughs> and at the time recording this, I mean, there's kind of been no backlash from Sony over this, no takedowns or anything as far as we can see, which, you know, obviously when, when it happens at Nintendo, normally by the time we've talked about it, it's gone. <laughs> Download so, as quickly as possible, guys, yeah, all this so. data. I don't know, play, PlayStation are usually all right with these kind of things, aren't they? I mean, well, I, I mean, that's one thing you've got to say about Sony is they, they tend to kind of, when they've left a generation behind, move on pretty quickly which actually kind of ties into this um, other big playstation story that's been doing the rounds this week um admittedly you know it is slightly modern for what we talk about i mean we're talking about you know playstation 3 um the ps feature and the psp digital but i think the, the important point here is that you've got to think i mean when did the ps3 go off sale it was at what about 2014 i want to say i was going to say did the ps4 come out in 2014 2013 2013 that came out and, and then i think they supported the ps3 for another year or two didn't they yeah, well, now the well, the big rumour that's going around, I've been seeing this everywhere this week, is that apparently they're going to be closing down the PS3, PS Vita and PSP digital stores mm. in July this year. Um, we're expecting an official announcement before the end of this month. So from the reports that are out there already, apparently this is you know unconfirmed, but it's a verified source that's told um, a website, The Gamer Reports. Um, and apparently what they're going to do is they're going to take the, the digital stores offline. So that means any games that you've got either on digital or on physical that need updates or patches. And I mean, you know, you think when that era came in, the PS3, um, I remember playing like, you know, Gran Turismo and getting, you know, massive 10 gigabyte updates and stuff for it. That was kind of the first generation of consoles that had these massive online regular patches. Yeah. So it does mean that, you know, really, if you've got a PS3, get your discs in there maybe get a backup hard disk and get all your patches and updates done because when these servers go offline in July, there's going to be no way of getting them again from what we understand. Yeah, it's rumoured for July 2nd for the PS3 and then August 27th for the PS Vita. Um, but it, it, it's with that in mind as well, it's, it's kind of like that reminder of like digital media, yeah, it's really good, but it's not always going to be there. You know, like the Wii store is gone, now the PS3 store is going. And the thing I always liked about the PS3, and it's interesting because before I even read this, I'm on a proper Mortal Kombat hype at the moment, and I've been really wanting to play the original Mortal Kombats. And I was like, oh, you know, I need to buy Mortal Kombat Trilogy or something for uh, PlayStation 1. I thought, you know what, I wonder if it's on Xbox Live or PlayStation Store. So I Googled it, and it's on the PS3 Store. And only recently I felt like playing Resident Evil 3. I've, obviously, I've got it. But once again, I wanted to play it on my Xbox or my playstation and it's only on the ps3 store so there's a lot of old school ps1 games available on the ps3 store which are now going to disappear you know i i had tekken 1 2 and 3 on the ps on the ps3 as well downloaded so not only were we losing you know all these you know digital games and stuff like that but playstation 3 was actually a really good you know way of playing retro games like ps1 games you know there's a huge library of ps1 games on there which you can't get on ps4 or ps5 which I'll- I think is a huge shame that we're not going to be able to download them anymore. I don't know if if there is a way to kind of salvage these. Like mm-hmm. I, the experience I have is I've used a Wii U 
And on the Wii U, they've got a great PSP emulator. And the yeah. PSP has a thing called uh, the PKG Depackager, which yeah. is basically like these files um, that come off the store come in a, a PKG form. So you can actually like rip it and turn it into a ROM and stuff. So I think stuff with like existing scenes, there might be a whole collection of the Vita titles. There might be a whole collection of the PSP stuff. I don't know about PS3 and what the emulation scene is like that, but I, I say keep an eye on a modern vintage gamers channel because he's just fantastic at kind of knowing about all of these and, and getting these old stores going. And it just shows the kind of temporary nature of uh, video games now, you know, uh, physical packaging is always always going to win in my books, um, especially when stores can go down and, you know, services can stop. Like the amount of titles that have multiplayer f- functions and stuff that are just gone now. Um, it, it's quite sad to see, actually, you know, these places that people used to love and play uh, can just disappear overnight. Yeah, because I mean, any, any DLC you've got, obviously, you know, when your hard disk dies in your PlayStation 3, you're not going to be able to get any more. And, you know, really, you think of it, I mean, it hasn't been that long. I think that's the thing that kind of shocks me a bit about this. You've got games that you could have paid full price for, like, what, seven, eight years ago, mm. that now you can no longer re-download. It depends, though, as well, because you look at, like, Fantasy Star Online and the Dreamcast, and people have got their own fan servers. So who knows if there's going to be a way, if you've got a modified one of kind of hooking up to a fan server and then playing this again, or, you know, like a fake PSN might might, uh, turn up, but they'll probably get sued. Who knows? (laughs) Well, that that is another point. I mean, you know, I I was also reading today that this is going to get worse in the future. You know, like the the PlayStation 4, they reckon, actually needs a service to be online just to launch games. So when that eventually goes down, nothing is going to work on it. So I think it, it proves two things to me here, that piracy is really important for preservation, because really that is the only way that you're going to be able to play these games in the future, like illegally crack copies of them. And uh, I'm seeing the the appeal of PC gaming more and more every day. PC Master Race. (laughs) (laughs) That's it though, isn't it? I mean, because really you're just essentially renting these games, aren't you, until they decide the servers go off and then, uh, sorry, you've lost, you know, five grand's worth of games that you bought on that generation. Like the thing is, you know, I I use Steam and... You're not streaming off Steam, but you are downloading and you are getting updates. But there is a way that you can circumvent actually Steam doing that. Steam's more like a a library where you just say, I own these and then download them straight away. But I don't see that going anywhere. Yeah, I think I think PC gaming is kind of the way forward with uh, preserving stuff. You know, uh, like they don't even have disk drives or, or a way of having physical media in some of the new consoles, do they? Mm, yeah. yeah, that is true. You won't catch me with one of them. <laughs> well, maybe these modern consoles are you know, a little bit too complex. What about playing your video games on a pizza box? That sounds ideal to me. <laughs> sounds I like love pizza. From I love to the future. <laughs> it does actually. Yeah, now you say that. Well, this is Pizza Hut. We're apparently going to um, allow you to play Pac-Man on an AR version of the game on limited edition pizza boxes. Yeah, so this is in North America, so it's a shame it's not coming to the UK. Otherwise, I'm sure all three of us would be all over it and be posting on social media. But yeah, if you buy, I think it's their $10 large pizza, you know, like offer, it comes with a Pac-Man, you know, board on the back. Um, And if you scan the QR code, then yeah, you can play a game of Pac-Man on your phone in uh, augment reality on the pizza box. 
um, which just seems like such a random like promotion. Like, I mean, is it is it a big anniversary for Pac Man this year? I don't think it is. Um, it's so random, but it, it's very cool at the same time. It's, it's it kind of ties into um, you know we're talking about the the retro games on the planes recently, weren't we? Yeah, is that kind of how mainstream retro gaming is becoming all of a sudden? It's good, and it's like you know. It's kind of like recycling. It kind of reminds me of that. I I reckon you know there's going to be a whole market now of uh, your old pizza box on eBay, and you're going to yeah. sell it to the regions <laughs> that don't have this. That's a very good point. Well, I'm, and I'm then re- buy a new pizza. Yeah, <laughs> I'm reading the article here. So apparently the the CMO uh, George Felix of Pizza Hut has said part of the experience is to kind of recreate the experience of going to Pizza Hut in the 80s, where you would play arcade machines such as the sit down cabinet version the tabletop version of pac-man so i imagine he's probably like nostalgic for that and thought you know what let's see what we can do because i guess not not so much in the uk i mean it could be i just can't remember but i guess in america yeah you'd go to like a pizza joint and have all the arcade machines there yeah so no you just to- you just wait in the uk in like a, a room just like yeah there, just in a pizza with, yeah. with a room in a, with a red couch isn't it they, they, they could have made some money you probably got more chance of playing an arcade at the chip shop though yeah yeah but yeah so leisure center yeah. Tr- trying to push your way through to the cellar bar was always the uh, the game that you're playing pizza here i think <laughs> even though i did go to frankie and benny's years ago and they had televisions like crt tvs and it was like i'm, I'm in a restaurant and they've got televisions. It's like when I was a kid, that was a novelty. <laughs> <laughs> now that sounds like something out of Back to the Future. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the way this works is, I mean, there's actually a screenshot of it on this um, article that I put in our show notes. So you download the, the Pac-Man game onto your phone and then on the top of the pizza box is a Pac-Man maze. And then it uses AR to put the ghosts and Pac-Man superimposed on your phone screen over the box that you're shooting on your phone camera. So, yeah, you are playing Pac-Man in, you know, augmented reality in 3D. So it looks pretty good, actually. You're going to have to buy one off eBay now. I've bought a lot of tat off eBay over the years, but, yeah, I think buying a used pizza box from America um, might be taking it one step too far, as badly as I want to play this. (laughs) Someone completely drunk trying to get Pac-Man to work on their pizza box in the street after a night out. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine Dan doing it. Yeah. Maybe I will buy one this weekend. While he's still with his wife, and she's just there, arms folded, like, can we just get a taxi now? Can I just eat the pizza? You've seen that look as well, Joe. I have, I have. Now, let's talk about another really weird find. I mean, we mentioned the um, Sega R360 cabinet that was found abandoned in a field a couple of weeks ago. It seems if you want to find really rare retro gaming items, fields are the place to be. Yeah, this this is crazy this one i had to kind of like i didn't believe it and it all seems so like circumstantial but you know after watching the video and actually reading the article it it does add up so this comes from a a guy a game collector in california who essentially from what i understand i'm going to try and simplify it here essentially um, somebody reached out to him about a 24 year old never seen before a prototype Hyper Neo Geo 64 game um, of Samurai Showdown 3D. Um, Mm. Now, just to kind of like note how crazy this is, there has never been, there was only ever seven games on the Hyper Neo Geo 64, which was like an arcade cabinet from 1997 to 99 uh, by SNK. And essentially, we've never ever seen a dev kit or prototype kit or anything like that for this. 
Um, and essentially, somebody reached out to this game collector and says, "I've I've got this. Like I've I've found this in a field." And he's just like, "How on earth have you found this in a field?" So essentially, what happened was the guy who reached out. I forget their names. Apologies, it'll be in the article. But the guy who reached out was a he he like fixes arcade machines and pinball machines and a woman contacted him and said I've got this new pin they've got this pinball machine that needs fixing and he said where did you get this pinball machine from it's like a really classic old one and he says oh I bought it from a woman who owns a farm in you know in in California um and he was like right okay and he was like yeah her her husband used to own like an arcade repair shop like repairing arcade boards and stuff in the 90s Right. Um, so essentially, he said, "Can I get this this you know this older lady's number? Can I give her a call?" So yeah. So he gave her a call, left her a voicemail, and she rang him back straight away. And she was like, "Yeah, you know, my husband used to buy um, literally pallets of like old broken arcade machines and stuff like that in the nineties, and they just sat in the field, not in a barn or anything, just sat in the field like with tarpaulin over them." Um, in the fields and she says i've been meaning for years and years and years to you know for somebody to come and take them away like just to scrap it um so there was these six big pallets and he said can i come and root through them and like buy them off you if they're worth anything and she said yeah but you know um a tree got like struck by lightning and fell on them so like a tr- not only are they just in the field for years a tree has fallen on them and like <laughs> smashed them all up but he still went out there he's looked through them and yeah he's found a prototype copy of hyper neo geo 64 works completely fine um you know they've got it running and everything like that and they've been playing it and you know checking out the differences and stuff like that um you know there's prototypes from 1997 (laughs) works absolutely fine um but yeah apparently it turns out the guy that you know the guy who was buying these pallets and stuff he bought it from SNK directly from snk in china apparently like when when they went out of business when they stopped you know like when it went out of business in 2000 apparently so the story adds up because when i first read it i was like what they just found it under a tree it's, in a field <laughs> it's really weird like when i went over to america there's this kind of collecting culture there um if you look at a video that lgr did recently there's yeah. this warehouse just full yeah. of stuff and there's this collecting culture where they kind of just buy everything and uh, some people have like warehouses full of stuff and there must be these random collectors like buying pallets up i went i went to a warehouse that was just full of old crt monitors old original macs and everything oh it's just amazing some of the stuff they've got yeah but yeah i'm not surprised it's just just funny like yeah it's in a field under a tree that fell over (laughs) did he have to lift the tree and it was underneath i I, I had no idea but apparently he just went through the pallets and you know i don't know what else he found in there if there was anything you know notable but yeah, it's just like this random like cartridge, just just like covered in grime from the picture, and just like a little bit rusty. But it works. They've plugged it in, and it works. And wow. you know, we've never, you know, I, I'm not familiar with the the Neo Geo 64, um, the Hyper Neo Geo 64, should I say? But yeah, you know, we've never ever seen any sort of development kits, anything like that, apparently. And, and uh, you know, this guy, <laughs> this guy just finds one in a field and gives it to a friend. Makes a great headline as well. Doesn't yeah, it? it does, doesn't it? Because when I first read it, I thought like it was like really crazy. Because Dan said or it, like, it or yeah, and I thought it literally like a tree had been like chopped down, and it was in like the roots of the tree underground. <laughs> That's <laughs> how I read it. An owl or something. Yeah, I was like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, it's under a collapsed tree. 
So I don't know what your plans are for the weekend. Think I'm uh, going to go to farms with a metal detector. So um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll have some rare Atari carts to uh, to present to the world next <laughs> <Absolutely>. week, probably. <laughs> now, we always love talking about coding competitions as well. Um, this one is really exciting. And in fact, if you go to our website at theretrohour.com, you could win 25 codes for you to get involved in this. Now, this is called the Fuse Coding Competition. Yeah, so Fuse is an absolutely awesome piece of software. It allows you to code on your Switch, which is really cool because, you know, Nintendo usually have this thing locked off. And uh, the idea of this competition is it's uh, to increase awareness of the coding platform. But also, you know, these guys will try and get kids encouraged with coding and they can't go into schools or careers event at the moment because of uh, COVID. So the idea is... Fuse empowers kids and it also helps kids with learning difficulties and ASD as well. But the main thing about this is, my God, they've got some amazing prizes and some amazing judges. So they're giving away 3,800 quids worth of technology. And that's like five Evercade um, consoles with game packs can be won. Uh, There's 16 Retro Fusion books as well and uh, two My Retro Computer cases. And... The judges on this uh, competition are absolutely amazing as well. They've got Eugene Jarvis, Jeff Minter, the Oliver Twins, Wireframe Magazine, and Team Fuse as well. So, I mean, they are some heavyweight names, you know, particularly to us guys who love retro gaming, who will be judging the software that you make using the Fuse platform. And I think this is awesome, actually, because, I mean, I've got like a, a basic interpreter on my Nintendo Switch, and I was blown away that you could do that. Um, But actually, this looks much more fully featured, and obviously, you know, getting your work in front of legends like that as well. Um, And there is still quite a bit of time to get your entry in. Yeah, so they've uh, actually extended the deadline now to the um, 30th of April, and they've also got a Just Giving page, so check that out. We're going to be giving away 25 codes. Um, They're only PAL ones, so... You know, they'll only only work in Europe at the moment. But um, check that out on our website. And, you know, good luck to everybody making stuff. If, if you get one of these codes, you might have time to put something into this competition and then win, win an Evercade. You know, we were saying, actually, weren't we, on our After Hours podcast that um, we, we need a retro hour video game making. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. But but it depends on the content, you know, if it's if it's a really weird game. We'll see. It could be me, like, in fields looking for games. Handsome Joe, the video game. Joe digging up farms. Yeah, exactly. I, I, the idea of that. So if, Fighting if you need an idea. farmers to get Neo Geo stuff. So, uh, yeah, you can check that out right now. We'll keep that open for a couple of weeks on our website. Right then, now, before we get into our chat this week with uh, Rob Jubber talking about the Vectrex community, making new games for it in 2021, and some really interesting PlayStation development history, let's give a massive thank you to this week's sponsor, our wonderful friends at Jeff Wayne's The War of the Worlds. Now, obviously, we're getting really excited for things starting to open again and the fact that we can attend things again this summer here in the UK. And this is this incredible immersive experience, which is like nothing you've ever seen before. It's a unique award-winning event where live actors, virtual reality, and incredible 5D effects place you inside the action with Jeff Wayne's multi-platinum musical version of The War of the Worlds as your soundtrack. And that album, actually, I mean... 
I didn't realise that that was actually you know, one of the most popular albums of all time. I mean, it's kind of up there with like Michael Jackson's Thriller. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. And like you guys probably don't know this about me, but I'm a bit of an old West End theatre technician and I, I, I used to love that stuff. And this kind of idea of a, a 5D immersive experience is really interesting. Like they've got 17 characters featuring 12 live actors and a mix of holograms as well. Uh, and they're from the West End. So you've got like Carrie Hope Fletcher from Heather's Les Miserables. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, you've got Tom Brittany from Grantchester, Make Me Famous, and Amarine Way from The War of the Worlds Live. I mean, I sent the trailer over to Joe. First thing he messaged me back was like, we need to get on this and like make this a night out. It looks insane. So when you first said of this, like, oh, you know, we've been sponsored by, you know, by this, I was like, right, okay, is this like a theatre thing? And you were like, nope. And I was like, okay, so is this like a a walkthrough thing you were like nope the only way i can describe it i mean go and look at the trailer it looks unreal but it's just like you know it looks like escape rooms but just like on the next level it's like nothing i've ever seen before you know not the whole thing is in virtual reality it's like parts of it in virtual reality then you're like you're going down slides you're trying to escape from move uh, from rooms obviously aspects of the 5d effects with the um with the virtual reality but you're not always in virtual reality like some parts of you are some parts of you aren't you know and it, it, it's it's not like 45 minutes long either it's two hours long so it's the, you know it's the whole night it just looks awesome and that moment when you first see the arrival of the 300 foot marching fighting machines <laughs> and the evacuation of london i just imagine i don't know if i'd like, laugh or cry like <laughs> i'd be like laughing like that looks so amazing but like screaming as well because i just want to run away <laughs> Well, this is London's favourite immersive night out. It's actually a rated 16 on all London nightlife on TripAdvisor. And it reopens this summer from the 22nd of May until the 30th of October in London. So we've actually got an amazing offer if you want to come along. And obviously, this is all completely COVID safe as well. Yeah, every ticket comes with a COVID booking guarantee. So you can buy tickets with complete confidence. And it has a good to go approval which is the industry standard mark from visit britain yeah and you can cancel your tickets anytime up until 5 p.m the day before your experience you know no problem with that at all but actually we want you to go and check this out because it just looks like something you will never have experienced before and great you know to go along with friends and family as well really make a day of it and we've got this offer where you can get 10 pound off orders over 180 pounds and five percent off orders under 180 pounds by using our exclusive code now all you have to do is head onto their website thewaroftheworldsimmersive.com so that's thewaroftheworldsimmersive.com use our code retro when you click on buy it now of course you'll be helping out the podcast and you'll make that massive saving as well so go and check out this incredible experience to tingle all five of your senses jeff wayne's the war of the worlds the immersive experience back in london this summer now, we do have a patron running at the moment as well. Patron is so important to this show, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. If it wasn't for patron, we probably wouldn't be carrying on right now. We'd probably be on hiatus, which would be very sad. Um, but yeah, we started patron about 13 months ago now, didn't we? About 12 months ago. And it has been the absolute backbone of the show financially, just letting us be able to do this from home safely it was always a probability that we wouldn't be able to carry on using the studio that we were using, which was Dan's work. And, you know, we were struggling. We were recording at like 11 at night and stuff like that on Wednesday nights. 
But now, because of Patreon, we've got all the equipment at home and we get to record at like two in the afternoon on a Wednesday, um, which is just so, so much better. And the fact that we have been able to do it the whole way through the pandemic as well has been amazing. And that's thank you to our listeners. And you know yeah, what? We, we, we do a podcast called the Retro Hour After Hours. And I have so much fun doing that because it's no editing. We just go completely crazy and <laughs> we talk about the maddest things we were talking about urban legends last time and kind of some of the stuff that we learn and you know some of the crazy things that kids said oh god there was one about furbies um, using dog hair <laughs> at one point you know it's it's really good fun having a chat and you know i love doing the retro hour anyway with these guys but just doing a little bit of extra content it, it makes me feel like social for the whole week yeah, and we've actually got nine exclusive patrons-only podcasts that you can check out right now by joining our patrons today. You'll also be invited to our monthly patrons hangout that we do as well, which is all such a laugh. Uh, we get together for a few hours on a Sunday night, just nerd out about all things retro. But really the main reason that we'd uh, appreciate your support is it just helps us pay for all the running costs and continuing costs that we have doing the show for you each week and getting these amazing guests as well. And the money we earn on there goes back into the running of the podcast. So if you'd like to support us, you can find Find it right now at theretrohour.com. And of course, you will get a mention on a future episode in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like, thank you so much to Charlie Pierce, Morgan Evans, Control Alt Rees, John Taylor, and Hisham Khalifa, who all made donations into the running of our show. That is massively appreciated. And you can do the same at theretrohour.com. Right next, then, we are going to hear about some classic PlayStation development and the Vectrex community and making new games for that incredible system in 2021 with our guest Robin Jubber next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now we're going to be covering so much um, with our guest this week from the Acorn Archimedes of BBC Micro, the PlayStation, up to uh, work that he's doing today on the Vectrex, which I know Ravi is very excited about, you know, being that it's one of your favourite systems. So let's welcome on this week's very special guest, Robin Jubber. Welcome to the Retro Hour. Thanks very much for having me. Hi, chaps. Great to have you on. Now, um, before we get into kind of what you're doing on the Vectrex these days and a bit about your history... Where did it begin for you then? What initially got you into computers and gaming? Um, I think I was about seven when I saw a Spectrum um, playing, I think it was Jetpack. And obviously the first thing you do is you play the game. But then after you, you think, how does that work exactly? What's the, uh, what, how does that magic appear on the screen? So um, I think I started coding when I was about seven or eight, trying to work out how it worked. And my first efforts were very, very bad. Well, but You mentioned that, um, you know, you were working with... Uh, a vax back in the days like or, or you'd had access to one was that where you saw titles like uh, space war um no i didn't i didn't see any any games on that it was my my dad worked at um shell expo and they had a lot of big computers and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it would have been vax delta kind of era machines although again i was very young so i can't remember much about them the main thing they did with them was um print out pictures of snoopy using ascii and then everyone in the office would gather around to look at this amazing thing. ASCII art still impresses me to this day, what people can do with it. That's all they had back then. They didn't have um, mm. any graphics on their machines. Because um, you, you've ported some games onto the Vectrex, and actually uh, Space War is one of them. So some of those kind of maybe early Vax titles might have actually been put onto your port recently. Maybe it's stuck in my head, um, although I can't remember that too clearly. 
Um, but I thought I had to have Space War there somewhere because it's, you know, it's kind of like the one of the daddies of, um, granddaddies of computer games, along with Pong. Well, obviously the BBC Micro, you know, for those of us who grew up in Britain, was, you know, a really important machine. What did you think of it? And were you programming on the BBC Micro then when you got your machine? Well, that was my first home computer when I was about 10. So, yes, I was coding on the, the BBC Micro for years quite badly also it turns out i should have um i should have had a disk drive but i only had tape so a lot of the the more advanced coding techniques like using assembler kind of uh, passed me by everything was in basic and everything was very slow but it was a, a terrific way to learn about programming the bbc micro had a version of basic that's based on comal and it was written by um the lady who went on to design the arm chip and it's, a, it's just a very good programming environment especially um if you're just starting out because i remember learning basic on the BBC Micro at school. And then when you try to use something like, you know, basic on the Commodore 64, it just felt so inferior, didn't it? All of the uh, all of the commands were missing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of the early um, computers had um, Microsoft basic or some variation of that on it. And it wasn't very good. Probably where the reputation for basic being a bit of a lousy language comes from. And uh, they were quite expensive as well, weren't they? Like the floppy drives back then. The BBCs themselves were quite expensive, but then getting the floppy drive yeah. on top of that would have uh, broke you yes. probably. The Beeb was pricey enough that that was all the present I was getting for a very long time. So I didn't get a disk drive. It's taken me 25, 30 years to finally get around to getting a disk drive for my computer, by which time it's a little bit redundant. <laughs> well, I mean, the Acorn Archimedes, you know, speaking of machines that cost a fair bit as well, um, that we all used at school, they were fantastic machines as well. What are your thoughts on the Archimedes then? And what, what makes that machine so special? What memories have you got? Um, well, that was that was the, the next computer that I got um, after saving up for ages. I got the A3010, which was kind of like the entry level Amiga style machine, sort of wedge shape. And I loved it. It was really, really fast. It was um, 12 megahertz ARM 250 which is like one of the first system on a chips. And it didn't have a blitter like the Amiga did, but it, all it had was raw horsepower. Plus moving from, from eight colors to 256 colors was like a huge step forwards. It was really just fantastic in every single possible way um, back in 1993 when I first got it. I've still got it sitting next to me. It's looking a little bit long in the tooth, but um, it's still incredibly easy to use the operating system. It was, it was just a very well-designed computer, apart from the palette. Acorn could not do palettes. They were terrible at it. But that, apart from that, that tiny wrinkle, and it was the, because it also used BBC Basic and had BBC Basic 5 built into it. You could sort of basically just jump from the Beeb to the, the Archimedes and, and keep coding. So you kind of took your knowledge base from the uh, BBC straight onto the Archimedes and then uh, started developing. And um, you actually kind of got involved in the industry there. What, what was it like? Was it a, a very small kind of bedroom industry? Because I do remember playing titles like Lemmings and stuff on the uh, Archimedes. It was, it was a mixture of um, incredibly small bedroom um, coding. But like a, a one game I wrote, I was individually putting uh, labels onto the disks when people would send me a letter saying, hi, could you send me a copy? And I'd post it back to them. So, you know, you're talking a couple of hundred copies, maybe, maybe less, actually, now I think about it. Um, but also it had a, um, access to a lot of the best Amiga games. Um, so you get things like Flashback and um, Magic Pockets, all of the stuff by Bitmap Brothers. Um, so it was a sort of, a, but it wasn't a very large market, certainly not for computer games. So yeah, if you wanted to play games at that era, probably the Amiga was a better choice. Was was that mainly because of uh, the architecture, and it was just easier to, to to port over Amiga titles? Oh yeah, it was, it was very easy to port um, because it had so much power. You could do everything quite easily. I think that there's some games 
somebody's still working on a version of Shadow of the Beast for it. Um, oh, nice. Because you know, but they're doing it all using the raw horsepower of the arm as opposed to using a blitter. And there are ways to, to draw stuff to the screen at the same speed that the blitter does it. Yeah, but basically that was its main advantage. It could do everything all of the other computers around could. It just didn't have a very large market. So it's down to how many people were prepared to convert stuff for it. I was always really impressed with the sound as well. Eight channels, 16-bit, maybe, I think. Was it 8-bit? I'm not absolutely sure. Um, as you can tell, I can sort of remember some of the stuff we used to have arguments in the playground about. Important <laughs> you know, it is interesting, because I did, um, I've actually got an Acorn A3010 that I picked up a few years ago, because we use the A3000s at school, and I recently did a, a video for YouTube comparing it to an Amiga, and, you know, using them at school, I, I wasn't really aware of just how powerful they were as gaming machines, but it was actually quite eye-opening when I, when I did that comparison. Well, it was incredibly quick. The Obviously, the ARM had been sped up a bit for the ARM 250, and the ARM was just a, a revelation in terms of um, computing power. You know, I think it, was, it, was, it wasn't until the 486, later 486 or Pentium era that um, contemporary computers began to catch up. It didn't have particularly sophisticated um, video capabilities like the Amiga, but it didn't really need them. It just, it just used grunt to get everything done. Um, lots and lots of sound channels. Uh, tons and tons of screen resolution. And the best thing, I think, was probably the operating system, which is really nice. Workbench is quite clever, but um, RISCOS is much, much more um, powerful, certainly easier to use. I'm, I'm realizing that I'm slipping back into um, childhood um, adversarial mode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I always think that RISCOS, it, it was really nice, but it it looked a bit simple on on the outside. And that kind of maybe gave it a bit of a disadvantage. Maybe. Um, when I've come back to using it um, after decades have passed, I find it still really good. I think that the simplicity on the surface is covering lots and lots of power underneath. Um, the Cambridge scientists put tons and tons of features into the operating system, um, sort of hidden beneath it. I'm actually, it's actually running on my com the computer next to me at the moment. So you've, you've kind of got all the same power of everything else at the time, just a little bit nicer to use than, say, Windows or at least Windows 3.1. But um, yeah, I guess it's <laughs> beauty's in the eye of the beholder. If you're an Amiga fan, I may not be able to persuade you. <laughs> I, I always thought RISCOS was very elegant. Um, and even stuff like, you know, you can you can set your RAM disk size just by pointing and clicking and dragging, you know, little um, taskbars up and down. I thought that kind of, um, it, I know it's very middle mouse driven as well, isn't it? You do a lot of stuff with the middle mouse button that kind of trying to use it today. It's very different from what we do in terms of modern user interfaces, but they were definitely trying to do something different. Um, and I think there is, you know, a lot of drag and drop and stuff in there as well. It was, like you said, a lot of power hidden under a, a simple user interface. The one nice feature is that you could build window apps in basic with it. So you just write a quick bit of basic code and you bring up all the icons and pointers you want and you're running in a multitasking um, setting, which isn't always that easy to do um, in other OS environments. It's still a bit of a pain in the neck, um, even now in Windows. RiskOS as well, like Amiga OS, has had a bit of a, a kind of checkered future and, uh, you know, different directions and stuff. What 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 state is RiskOS in at the moment? Is there like a modern version oh, of RiskOS? Yeah, there are. I think there's there's two or three different competing versions. I'm, again, I'm, I'm not an expert in this because... Um, I think other people are pushing this stuff forwards. But um, I, I think that Acorn sold the rights to somebody, probably Castle or somebody like that, who then did their own version of RiskOS, and other people have been making their own sort of open source version. 
There's a version of Linux which has been reskinned to look like it and have the same basic functionality. And I think that there's a version running on the Raspberry Pi now. So if you have um, Pi, you can install RiskOS on that. And it has the same basic functionality, but obviously it's a lot faster. And you can still run quite a lot of the old software. So yeah, it's, it's, it's still going. Um, it's kind of cool that it is. I'm, I'm mostly using Windows these days, though, so I don't get a lot of use out of it. Well, there were two kind of uh, big gaming publishers, and that was a Superior and a Fourth Dimension. How, how, how did you get involved with Fourth Dimension? Uh, I think, I, I mean, I wrote a game which was essentially a copy of, um, which is a sort of a, a really crap thrust version. Um, flew a little spaceship around the place. It crashed into the walls. It was all written in basic, and it wasn't very good. And I sent it to um, the Fourth Dimension just out of, you know, I've seen their games, and I knew that they were the, the biggest publisher on the um, arc at the time. And they uh, they said, sure, come over, and, and would you like to write a game that's a bit like Pipe Mania? So I, I did um, a game called Gloop, uh, which was basically just a complete ripoff of Pipe Mania with some extra things in it. Which, by the way, was kind of the, the, the um, development model back then. They, they look for something that they like the look of, and they ask you to, to, to basically steal it. I went to the the, game, the Acorn Game Show, and the guy there paid me with a, a single-speed CD-ROM drive and um, a 20-quid check, I think it was. And then I never heard from them ever again. So that was my my sort of adventures in the, in the world of um, Acorn Archimedes Publishing. Wow, um, that, that's interesting to hear that. Because I mean, and obviously, like like you said, it was quite a limited, small scene. I mean, in terms of reception, I mean, um, I know there was even then a fiercely loyal audience around the Acorn Archimedes and you know the magazines and that kind of thing. What was the reception like then? And did you get much feedback on on Gloop? <laughs> Not very much. No, I think um, Gloop Gloop was received pos- positively in the couple of reviews it had. There was two magazines, Acorn User and and the micro user, I think the other one was called, and maybe another one called A and B Computing, if that was still going back then. So yes, you, you you get like a half page review maybe, but the the magazines tended to veer towards education and um, hobbyists, like like how can you plug this computer into something and make it work? Like I think that there were Archimedes running things in the stock exchange, and there was a couple of arcs running a bridge somewhere, that kind of thing. It was it was all for people who wanted to to interface with um, hardware. But they did have a very small uh, game section. It was quite cool to get into there when you're only like 17 or 18. And then years later, I was looking through, idly flicking through uh, copies of the magazine which were held on PDF. And I did find a review of the game Antigrav, the first one I'd written. And it was scathing. <laughs> it was like, this is terrible. And I was like, yeah, it's fair. It's oh, fair wow. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> that you didn't read that at the time, I bet. No, I didn't. I didn't see that review. Um, it's kind of crushing. <laughs> Well, what systems did you get into after the Archimedes then? And uh, did you develop anything before you um, developed your PlayStation stuff? No, I think I think the Archimedes, I, I hung on to that for, for far longer than I should have done. I, I played around with things like PC and stuff like that. I had a, an Amstrad, good Lord, what was it? Um, some kind of folding Amstrad um, laptop. Uh, I can't remember, a 386SX or something. No, it was worse than that. It was a tiny little green screen. It tended to suffer from battery leakage and, and it was just horrible. And it weighed, you know, like 50 kilos. So it's like sort of portable. So I did a bit of development on that. But um, I went to uni, did a couple of years of um, computer science, realized it was not the course for me. It's very old fashioned. And a university friend um, sold me his PlayStation. I really just wanted to play Tomb Raider on it. And uh, it had an advert um, in one of the magazines that came with it, said, would you like to work in computer games? And I thought, well, okay sent off for it and 
ended up on PlayStation. Do you remember when you first saw the PlayStation, what you thought of it? I thought, that's bloody amazing. The jump from uh, 2D to 3D was huge. And some, some, some of the 3D titles were pretty crap. You could see that the, um, the 3D was just getting going. But things like Tomb Raider and Wipeout were, were jaw-dropping, I seem to remember. Um, I, I think Tomb Raider maybe um, still holds up. Not visually, particularly, but in terms of gameplay, and and Wipeout, you can still play that as well. No, it was it was just a it was a it was felt like a quantum leap ahead of the um the other machines around at the time. So this must have been a li- a little bit later into the kind of PlayStation development if it was after uh, Tomb Raider, but um so was it a, like a commercial company that was then just putting out an advert? Because I remember there was a the Net Your Rose stuff as well, which was kind of a a homebrew a black PlayStation that you could do development stuff on. Yeah, I think the Net Your Rosie came out... Your Rose? Your Rosie? I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. It came out a little yeah, bit I later. Than, <laughs> um, I think that was that was what, a, a year or two into the PS1 dev cycle. I'm not. This is all a while ago. Um, yeah, it was a, a company called Pure Entertainment. And, and back then, I guess they just literally put an advert in a games magazine to find out if anybody wanted a job. That's maybe how things worked back then. Um, these days, you get um, assaulted by hundreds and hundreds of letters from recruitment agencies, but then I think it was a little simpler. That was, that was interesting. I ended up becoming a sound engineer with those guys um, for a year or two because I had a cupboard. They put me in a cupboard with some sound sound equipment, and I did the sound effects for things, despite not having any experience in that uh, field at all, um, and also a bit of coding, which was nice. Was it, was it like Monty Python with two coconuts sitting in a cupboard? And- <laughs> Basically, yes. <laughs> It was like a couple of synthesizers and a microphone, and there you are. Get on with it. We're all right. <laughs> I don't know how to use any of this stuff, but all right. Well, obviously, you um, did Rat Attack for the PlayStation 1. That was even on the um, PlayStation Magazine demo disc as well. That was, you know, every kid that I knew had collections of those demo discs. They were like the most important thing on the PlayStation. Tell us a bit about the development of that title and um, how it ended up on the, the demo disc. Um, I have no idea how it ended up on the demo disc. Um, I'm sure that someone at the company had the, the savvy to get in touch um, with Sony. We were quite close to the Sony building. We were near Oxford Circus, and uh, the Sony building is around the same place. So I'm, I'm imagining some canny executive at um, Pure Entertainment just turned up and said, hey, try try playing this. It was a, a bit of an odd title. Lots of cartoon cats and some rats to catch, and you had to draw shapes around the, them on the screen. And... Um, my contribution to that mostly was writing the, the drudgery. They'd say, oi, go write the um, memory card code. I don't know how to write the memory card code. Go do it. Okay. <laughs> you know, sort of like throwing it at the deep end and learning how to code in um, uh, C because the um, PlayStation couldn't handle C++. And thank God it couldn't because C is a much nicer language. We were using, I think, uh, Daytel um, equipment for development. These are, uh, do you remember the RAM pack for the Spectrum? Well, it was that kind of idea. It clips right. onto the back of the um, the PlayStation. It wobbles a lot. It it crashes all the time, and it can't handle more than eight characters for the name of a file name. It can't handle. It could. It was all sorts of things it couldn't do. Like you'd, you'd accidentally have a lowercase letter or a symbol or something, and it would crash. It wouldn't tell you why it had crashed. It would just die. You didn't have to hold it on with blue tack, did you? Yes, yes, you did. You use blue tack <laughs> or sellotape or prop something underneath it so it didn't it didn't move. Because if it moved, you'd, you'd lost all of that stuff you just sent to the PlayStation. It, interestingly, I've, I've just read in that um, 
some of the screenshots uh, were development ones that were actually sent out to the press and then they kind of released them and and these levels weren't included in the uh, final game oh blimey really <laughs> i feel bad <laughs> probably probably the less the less rat attack people got to play probably the, the better it was i don't know if it was the the finest title i've ever worked on but it was certainly important to me because it was the first playstation game i'd worked on i think also the the pure entertainment was um working on a number of different titles at once with a fairly limited budget so you know it's always the way if you have more time to develop something you can make it better but you never have that time well rat attack also ended up on the n64 as well i mean were you involved in that port and were there any difficulties you know between the two architectures um i was sitting opposite the chap called if i remember rightly called yinch who was um basically a development team on his own. He was um, converting it all to the N64. Um, the main, there were all sorts of problems with the N64. The, the usual stuff like RAM, the stunningly blurry graphics, really just, it just had a sort of a different architecture from the PS1. It's worth remembering that the PS1 was also a pretty simple computer. It was essentially a, um, a printer chip. I forget, it's like the R3000 or something. It was a chip you'd find in a printer or in a, a copier machine that they'd repurposed for um, <laughs> making computer games. Um, and the N64 had a slightly more traditional dedicated hardware for this sort of stuff, but it wasn't really 64-bit all the time. I do remember Yinch, uh, he wasn't the kind of person who was likely to swear a lot whilst in development, but he did seem to keep bumping his head against problems with the, um, the dev stuff. And I think while Sony were fairly open about uh, people developing for the PlayStation 1, I think Nintendo were a little bit more guarded as they always have been, about um, letting anybody outside of Japan have access to the full range of um, development software. So I think I think there was a, that was a bit of a struggle, more than the actual hardware, which was which was reasonably capable. Well, you mentioned um, in RMC's interview uh, that you'd been involved with Sabutio uh, for the PS One. Was this title released? Because I, I, I oh couldn't god, find I, I hope not. Anything online? <laughs> I, I hope that thing never saw the, the light of day. Um, that that's the worst game I've ever. I can't say that's true. I've worked on a lot of terrible titles, but that's one of the worst. <laughs> that, that was a really strange experience. We were, we were making Subutio, so we must have had the license. This was at a different company um, called Teeny Weeny Games, most famous, I think, for Ant Attack on the Spectrum, by a chap called Sandy White, who I actually got to meet and chat to. Um, so we were making this Subutio game, and we were trying to work out how to make it, make it fun, which isn't really possible, because Subutio is a simulation of a, of a proper proper game football but we were making a simulation of that simulation and you don't have any of the same ways of interacting that, that make even subutio half entertaining we ended up with the idea of maybe flicking the um the controller to sort of give the same feel but it, it nothing about it worked we didn't know how to draw the stadium we didn't have any resources um we had i think like three coders but no actual artists or maybe one person who was new to the software industry in general um and we were all a bit young and inexperienced as well so they decided to take us to Liverpool to meet the um, the world champions of Subutio, which is a lot grander in sound than it is in reality. <laughs> we um, we were expecting to go to some kind of large hall or something like this where we'd see, we'd meet the people who are playing Subutio professionally, professionally. But we ended up driving through the, the right into Liverpool, um, into the sort of the badlands, um, and stopping at someone's house where um, the assembled intelligentsia of the Subutio world in England were assembled in someone's front room. Um, whilst the, the mum came down and offered them biscuits. So it was like six or seven massive uh, Liverpudlian blokes, all very into Subutio, and then like three or four scrawny uh, coders on the other side who have no idea what they're doing there, <laughs> feel hugely out of place. And so we played some Subutio against them for a while. Uh, these are like the English champions of the game, I think. I think. 
the memories are a little blurry. And then we went back to the hotel and got incredibly drunk. Uh, more and more certain we didn't know how to make a game about um, Subutio. I think maybe it got canned. I have no idea what happened. To that. I think because Teeny Weeny Games um, sort of collapsed and sold all of its um, assets to itself. Like a, a new company sprang up in its place called Perfect Entertainment um, that bought all the assets. So I don't know what happened to half the stuff it was work we were working on. One good game came out at that time, which was uh, Discworld Noir, which I think I think I also wrote the memory card code for that. I think that was my one contribution to that game. And then What's that company folded as well. Well, Subutio was kind of like a cult classic, wasn't it? It was a Waddington's and Hasbro's. It's a very British thing as well, kind of playing on the uh, dining room table, <laughs> you know, <laughs> flicking tiny little players and characters. Uh, I saw that actually a Subutio game came out for the DS <laughs> later on. I bet that was brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine having a touchscreen probably helped when playing that kind of game. A little bit. I, I still think it would have been a terrible idea. And I don't, I don't envy whoever had to work on that. <laughs> How did your version work? Was that the season in the, uh, the PlayStation controller? Yeah, we, it was the PS1 controller. I'm, I'm thinking back now. Um, and I think we had to say the, it had the um, analog sticks. So if you had one of the PS1 controllers that had analog sticks, then you could flick it and could sort of pick up on it. And there was a big finger on screen that moved around and killed the frame rate because you were trying to draw transparent stuff at the same time as everything else we were we were having all sorts of problems with that game i seem to remember we couldn't get it to draw the stadium and the ball and the players and the on score uh, on screen uh, ui uh, at the same time it was a little bit difficult the ps1 wasn't especially fast it was good at some things and, and others it struggled and also of course you had to deal with the um the z uh, problem where all of the um polygons near the front tend to warp out of um, alignment because I think they were all using uh, integer mathematics. It had a lot of um, a lot of things to work around, especially if you had a very small team who didn't know what they were doing and were getting drunk all the time. You've really sold the game to me now that I actually really want to play it. Yeah, no, I want to get my Subutio out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about something that um, had a bit of a challenging development timeline. Um, Malice for the PS2. Oh, God. Another game took uh, was about four years, wasn't it? What what can happen there then? What's the story? Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, that thing was a, a car crash that just kept happening. I think it started on, I, I want to get this right, I think it started on something like the Saturn and then playstation one and then ps2 and then i think it came out on the xbox um, also on the ps2 but the xbox became the sort of the lead title because we were showing off shadows and because i think bill gates had played our game briefly for some um stand-up presentation or something it just it was just like a death march that game uh, a lot of friendships were made while working on it like in the trenches but it never seemed to end it never seemed like it would ever come out it, it was just a, an idea that hadn't been fully realized with a designer who wasn't um also able to manage the team properly. Um, I've got to be careful what I say. I don't want to insult anybody um, years after. But um, everyone on the team was very young as well. We were in our 20s and not entirely certain what we were doing. But we didn't really know what the game was meant to be. So it kept changing all the time. Um, and, and more and more money was being spent on it. I think that game was pretty much the reason why uh, Argonaut doesn't exist anymore. We, we, I'm not sure that there were a lot of titles there which um, hurt the company, but but Malice was just a pit for money to be thrown into, um, and it had more and more and more people working on it. Yeah, so I I, uh, I don't look back fondly on my time working on the game, but I did have a great time before the people we were working with. It's often the case that you end up with um, lots of friends, um, but the game itself is kind of crap. 
Um, Was it just like feature creep and everything? Yes, so much feature creep, so many more things added. How about we have this? I wonder what um, the latest Mario game is doing. Let's stick that in as well. The title became a sort of a running joke. At one point, I think we were the longest and most expensive development thing back then, back in the uh, early 2000s. Um, There's a couple of other games that were competing us, like like Duke Nukem just wouldn't end. But yeah, we were four years into it. I spent four years, and I think it had been going for longer. And I think when it finally came out, I think it was immediately released into the bargain bin at Target, um, which was which was heartbreaking after all the work. But it's about what the game deserved, really. Well, moving on to uh, other titles. Um... <laughs> it's going to be well, a litany of disaster, you realise? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we're getting into the Vectrax now, so uh, hopefully not. Um, but what, what was your personal history with the Vectrax and kind of uh, wh- why did you find it so fascinating? Um, well, I didn't have any personal history of it back in the day. Um, I had my BBC Micro and that was all I, I could afford. But years later, when I started collecting consoles and old um, computers, and I've got like loads of them now, um, it occurred to me that I really need to get a Vectrex in the collection somewhere. Once you've seen it, once you've seen the, the sort of super sharp, bright lines, you, you realize it doesn't look like anything else, and you kind of want one. And so I picked up a Vectrex, and I played it for a bit, and I was kind of curious how you coded for it, because um, well, most, lang- most computers have like an interface of some sort, even if it's a console there's usually someone's made a development environment, but I didn't know if there'd be anything for the Vectrex. So just just plain curiosity got me into it. And I think looking at that machine as well, I mean, it's very unique, isn't it? As soon as you see that vector display, it just doesn't look like anything else that you would have got at home back then. No, it doesn't, it doesn't look like anything else now even. It's, it's quite hard to emulate because of it, the unique way it draws to the screen. And yes, once you see it, you're, you're kind of fall in love with it. If you're into all these old retro machines which I think it's fair to say you guys probably are. I've got three yeah, of just them. A bit. I've got three of them now. Um, one is the one that I use most of the time. The other one is sort of failing on its last legs, but I think it's mostly a power switch problem. And the third one I keep in a box for when the other two break, because they're going to break. Yeah, I heard that everyone that's got a Vectrex, you need at least one or two backups. Yeah, they're, they're stunningly flaky <laughs> machines, but uh, very cool. Well, I know the, the library on there, I think, wasn't there only like 28 games or something officially released on this? I think system? it's even less. Kind of feel it was... I think it might be like 21 yeah. or something like that. Um, yeah, they, they, it had a lifespan of about a year. From from beginning to end, the Vectrex story is about one year long. It was 1981 or two it came out, and then the Atari, well, the whole games crash thing happened, probably stimulated by Atari. But um, then, then computer games were, were struggling to sell. Um, consoles were being marked down left, right, and center. And I think the Vectrex was probably you know, going for 20 or 30 pounds in in, um, in shops at the time. They couldn't shift it. And they certainly couldn't sell any games for it. So its 21 release titles were pretty much it for years and years and years until um, Homebrew came along. And like I look at the Vectrex, and to me it seems like, you know, every movie, how they used to represent video games, you know, it's got that kind of look. Um, were they popular when you picked one up and like, were they expensive as well? Well, pick three up actually. Well, they were really expensive. Uh, they've got even more expensive since then. I think mine were an average of 250 pounds each. Um, this was uh, back in about four years ago or so. Uh, Cause this is for me a fairly recent hobby. Um, and now they tend to go for more like four or five hundred pounds. Um, although you can still sometimes pick one up for two hundred and fifty. So yeah, they're, they're one of the pricier um, machines on the market, like like a CD thirty two, that kind of thing. Worth it though, I think. 
for something unique. Well, how hard is the system to program? It's a pain in the neck, um, but it's actually, it's, it's, once you get into it, it's really good. It's got a, um, the way to do it is, the, the simplest way is to um, just write some 6809 assembler, compile it using one of the free assembler programs like AS09, and then you burn that into a ROM and you put it into the machine, or you can run it on an emulator uh, as pure binary within the limitations of the machine. It's got 800 or so bytes of RAM, which isn't very much, but it does have, um, but you can have, say, 16 or 32K of um, ROM. So most of your most of your storage is actually ROM-based. So you put all of your graphics into the ROM files. And RAM is just used for the, the bare minimum, like um, X and Y positions and number of bullets and that kind of stuff, and, and collision systems as well. So in terms of how hard it is to code, I would say it's actually one of the easier old consoles to get into because um, there's also a, um, a development environment um, by a chap called Malban, which is it's just it's just mad. <laughs> Who builds a development environment, an entire um, IDE for a machine this old? Um, <laughs> but he has. He's built it. So you've got, you've got um, C. You can handle C if you want to um, prefer that language to assembler. It's not quite as quick, but it'll, it'll do the job for some stuff. Um, and you can edit uh, the vectors and things like this. I didn't discover any of this um, development environment until it almost finished making Player 2, which is my um, game for the, uh, the console. I wish I'd known about it at the start. But it was still great fun. Just basically a really good way to get your hands dirty in Assembler. And 6809 is the, the nicest of the 8-bit um, chipsets. It's a lot easier. Was it also found in the Dragon 32 as well, in the, the TRS-80, wasn't it? Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a badge of honor of failed machines to have a 6809 inside them. Sorry to any Dragon fans, um, <laughs> of which there are none. Oh, there'll be one. There'll be one that will get in touch. <laughs> I rate. We'll get a <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really good um, chip. It's um, very easy to program. It has a lot of features that um, things like the 6502 and the Z80 don't. Most useful are um, it's a multiply command, which is super helpful, and um, the fact that it's sort of 16-bit for a lot of operations. So if you're doing um, more advanced mathematics, you know, for example, for inertia and things like this, where you need to have um, fixed-point mathematics, and it's just really good at it. Whereas 6502 and the Z80 are constantly shuffling eight bits around in order to handle 16-bit numbers. So if anyone wants to learn um, assembler, I would say it's a pretty good place to start. Well, have you been uh, keeping an eye on developments? Because I saw uh, recently uh, Ralph Corman did Elite. Well, he's starting to make Elite for the uh, Vectrax, which I saw the video footage of it, and it looks insane. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, it's, I remember we were all discussing the possibility of making Elite. Um, a lot of people saying it's not possible, and I was working out why it was possible, why you could the amount of data you need to store, the number of ships that you ever have to deal with. Bear in mind, again, the 800 bytes of RAM is, is a huge restriction, but there are ways of working around it, like doing things on the fly and stuff like this. But in, normally in Elite, you meet about four or five spaceships at most at once. You need maybe 12 to 16 different categories for the number of um, things you can buy. So that's a bunch of bytes or half bytes. So it definitely is possible. You just have to have someone who's got a lot of time on their hands and prepared to rewrite all of the 3D routines. Because the, the, the Beeb's um, original code is... Um, it's it's really complex. I don't know if you've ever seen a breakdown of all the tricks that um, uh, they were doing in order to make Elite run on the BBC Micro. It only had about 12k total of available space. Maybe maybe a bit more. Maybe 20k 
when it was running um, in mode five. I'm trying to remember, Brabham and Bell, that's it. So yes. there all sorts of really clever tricks doing things like um, hidden line removal. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing the, um, the Vectrex version when it comes out, you know, years from now. In terms of the visual look of Elite, though, I just imagine that would look really at home. It's perfect for it, isn't it? it yeah. Getting those vectors to display um, 3D models is going to look really good. I, I really want to see that working. Well, with um, no two-player games been on the platform, as far as I know, did you kind of want to fill the gap by calling your game Player 2? Well, it was sort of that. That's part of the reason. A, a lot of it is down to um, broad incompetence on my part. It's really hard to write AI code especially if you just, you're still learning how the actual machine works and how Assembler works on it. What isn't so difficult is getting the other player to be the AI. So the first game I wrote, I think, was Pong, because you have to write Pong. You have to start, have to start there. It's, it's the holy grail. Um, get that working, and then you can work on everything else. So it, everything I was writing after that, things like uh, Space War and um, sort of primitive artillery game, a bit like Worms, but not as sophisticated, it was all two-player. So it, I, I realized pretty quickly I was basically writing a two-player compendium. Um, so... Partly it was down to the fact that there weren't a lot of two-player games on the machine, but mostly it's down to the fact that I'm not very good at programming. Well, tell us a bit about the game for people that haven't played it. Well, it's an utterly essential purchase if you have a Vectrex and a second controller, which means that my target market is almost nobody. It's not a very smart commercial decision. <laughs> it's a, it's a catalogue of, of two-player games. There's all the classics. There's things like Tron and Artillery and um, a a version of a two-player version of um, Thrust I wrote, where you go around multiple different caverns with your chum, um, shepherding a, an energy ball from the beginning to the end of the maze of lots of levels. Just because I wanted to see if I could make a multi-level, multi-player um, game for the Vectrex, which is kind of like the pièce de résistance. Once I'd worked out how everything else on the hardware worked, I was able to make a, a larger game for it. So it's got about 12 or, or 13, maybe more games on it. I think there's a primitive version of... Um, joust on there as well um it's probably about there's probably 20 bytes free on the cartridge which uses bank switching to get as much out of the uh, machine as possible it, you can save your games it's got it's the first game on the vectrex to have in-game translation so if you're french or spanish you can switch all of the dialogue in the menus it seemed like an important modern upgrade uh what else what else can i say in its favor it's got lots of art packages in it so if you want to leave the the vectrex just running displaying um fancy graphics it can do that for you it's got all the test card programs, so you can test your hardware's working, which is pretty redundant because once you turn on your Vectrex, it either works or it doesn't, and it's always a bit wonky, so you'll know it's broken anyway. Um, but I thought I should include that too. I just wanted to see how much stuff I could fit into 32K because that's a luxury from where I started back on the, the BBC Micro, which had that much memory in theory, but was usually mostly taken up with the screen mode. Well, Vectrex also had uh, overlays, didn't it? Colour overlays um for some titles did you uh consider that or did you know i've seen a few mods where people have used um uh, leds to create colors yeah i, I made a i made a an overlay for it um which involved finding a plastics company and saying hi um i've got a bit of an odd request for you and they go yeah sure that sounds cool because <laughs> they only get really boring requests normally so they wanted to work on it and it was to make a, an overlay that was all done in, I think, Photoshop. And then you just print it out in plastics um, and they, they do the printing for you. Um, and obviously, it's a tiny run. So I think I've made 250 of those because, you know, you're not going to sell very many copies of anything on the Vectrex. But, yeah, some people have, have gone, have taken it to the extreme. I've actually got one from a, um, looking at it now that a, a friend built. Um, and it's um, a UV display. So they have UV um, overlays. 
So when you turn on the UV panel, you get the um, the nice crisp effect of um, UV colors sort of sitting behind the image. Looks really good. The 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 breadth of things people have done for this machine since its early demise in '82 is uh, is is really remarkable. There are hundreds of different controllers you can get for it now. People have built their own joy pads, and they sell them to each other. Overlays, stickers, as you mentioned, the UV stuff, all sorts of upgrades, sound upgrades, um, various hardware internal upgrades. Someone's rebuilt the, um, I think, the motherboard. There's like their own sort of homebrew version of the motherboard, so you can replace that if you want to. Oh, nice. Kind of crazy, considering that the number of people who have one of these things is in the thousands, probably. Well, how hard was it to, like, develop and actually program the carts and, you know, test data on it and... and just get hold of the uh, PCBs and stuff. Um, surprisingly easy because because of this this strange but enthusiastic fan base for the machine. Somebody makes something somewhere. Like there's one guy because I, I made a bunch of boxes by going to a, a cardboard printing place. But um, someone had already worked out the proper dimensions and, and found a company in Scotland to print them. So I just went through him and got them done properly, and they look better than the originals somebody else has made the plastic inlays somebody else has made the the carts over in america so you have to ship them over and someone else has made the pcb so other than sourcing all the bits a lot of it's actually been kind of done for you which is good because i wouldn't have had a clue where to start building this stuff on my own i now know more about electronics than i used to because of the vectrex and i can solder a chip together but i still probably wouldn't be able to build my own pcb you know, in terms of when you're developing software for it, I mean, what's kind of the the emulation scene like? So I've even seen, you know, like emulators of the Vectrex running on like uh, oscilloscopes and that kind of thing. <laughs> is it, is there good emulators out there? Yeah, there's some, there's some good ones. Um, I'm trying to remember the names of the ones I was using. Um, there's one in the VIDE, in the Vectrex Integrated Development Environment, there is actually one built into it, which is, I think, the most accurate one. And it has access to all of the games. So VIDE is a really good place to start if you want to emulate the Vectrex. I've got one on my Wii U. <laughs> cool. Oh, wow. <laughs> I've just set my... Of course you have, Ravi. I knew you I've would. just set my Wii U up, actually. actually uh, probably look and see if I can find it and install it and have a, a massive um, what 42-inch version of um, the Vectrex running next to me. I'll, I'll send you a forwarder. I think RetroArch works in it quite well. Oh, cool. I'll give that a go. Okay, so um, there's one called ParaJVE, which I'm not entirely certain right. what that stands for. Um, VE must be Vectrex emulator. Uh, that's pretty good. Um, again, it has access to most of the original games and quite a few um, homebrew ones as well. But yes, VIDE is the place to look because that's got a built-in emulator. And do you offer like a, a downloadable version of Player 2 that people can play on emulators as well? Not yet, no. The, the problem is, is that mm. it uses um, some special hardware and some trickery in order to do save games. You have to send a, um, one of the lines high and send some numbers down it. A magic happens and you can save out. It's much easier to emulate the games that don't use save. But at some point, I'm just going to release the whole thing. I'm still selling it, bizarrely, um, although I get like one order a, a week or something or a month. But at some point, I'll just release it when I start work on so now, the next one. Well, I know there is a really passionate community around the Vectrex. Like you said, you know, it's a small community, but I've seen them you know, on Facebook groups and you know, they are really loyal to the machine. And what's, what was kind of the reaction when you release player two and you're showing it off you know all box with manuals online and you know at, at expos and that kind of thing that's very positive um they're a cheerful bunch and they're they're up for anything new that's been created there are some people who i think just want to collect literally everything that comes out for the machine they're normally in america uh, or germany which also has a, a large um 
Vectrex fan base are large, <laughs> being sort of a relative term here. But yeah, there's some people who are just super enthusiastic about any new games, and, and a lot of people do play them. I think a lot of people introduce them to their kids. There's, there's a fair few videos of people showing a presumably quite annoyed seven-year-old um, what daddy used to play back in the 80s. Um, and it is quite rewarding to see them being played, because um, player two, obviously, is, is a good one to introduce to. That's a, that's a bit of a, a plug for the game there. It's great if you want to introduce it to your kids, because obviously you can play against daddy. Um, at some point, my daughter's going to have to go through that horrible experience. So yeah, I think it was really positive. They were very helpful. And if I had a question about how things works, like why does the Vectrex do this? Some, you know, some esoteric aspect of the, um, the software or the hardware. There was usually somebody who had a fair idea or could point me in the right direction. So again, it's a good, it's a good machine to develop for if you want to have a crack at some, some hardcore assembler coding because there's a lot of support despite the tiny size of the community. What, what do you recommend would be the easiest way for someone like me who wants to be a new uh, Vectrex user to get into it? Do you think we'll maybe see a Vectrex Mini one day or something like oh, that? Oh, blimey, I have no idea. Um, there's one guy, there's this talk about it. People think about making um, smaller versions. The problem is the hardware. To make it, you have to have a CRT. You can't do it using a, you know, like a, um, an LCD panel because it wouldn't look the same. It would look a bit different. I suppose if it was really high res, like if it was a very small but 8K screen, I suppose you could fool the eye, but um, it would still be a, a trick using blurring. So, yeah, it's it's finding CRTs. I think there's a company in Japan that still makes CRTs for security cameras. So it would have to be something like that, but but bought in bulk. I think the, the I think the cost of building one of these things would be so prohibitive that probably the Vectrex was born and it died back in the 80s and I don't think there's going to be a new version of it but you never know so there's there's a lot of people out there building stuff some people are interfacing it into um, old vector arcade cabinets so that they replace the electronics one chap finds really big color televisions and plugs it into that as well so yes there is, there are like some hardware geeks out there doing clever things with it but I wouldn't hold your breath waiting for a new version the best idea is probably just to go on eBay and bite the bullet and <laughs> spend far too much money and buy one before the prices go up even Before, further. Exactly, because they're never going to go down. They're just <laughs> going to keep on going up. Because these things, um, the hardware was built down to a budget. So um, they spark and they fuse and they fall to pieces. Um, so the number of Vectrexes slowly whittled away by time. So I think they're just going to get more and more expensive. So if you're thinking of holding off, I wouldn't. <laughs> Buy one now if you can. And the uh, motherboard as well being replaceable, can you then swap the parts out to this new new printed motherboard? And like uh, the monitors as well, are they are they really rare or are they just a standard kind of CRT? Chuck, so it's they? a fairly it's a fairly standard CRT. I think they were bought as a job lot, and then the, the engineers tried to work out what to do with them. Yeah, they're pretty standard. But again, there's no new CRTs being manufactured, so you have to find something appropriate. And I, I think that there's something about the vector display means that you have to unwind the um the yoke and then put it back together again slightly differently in order to work for a vector display this is a little bit outside my field because i'm not a hardware guy but um so yes there is a you can't just stick any old crt in there also the problem with just taking out the motherboard and rebuilding it is it's it's probably not a job for the faint-hearted plus you've got you know twenty thousand volts sitting inside that thing even when it's unplugged it's probably a good idea to suggest to anyone who thinks that they can just take an vectrex apart and rebuild it be careful there's a lot of voltage in there. Yeah, some people have got the scars to show it, I imagine. I, I've been to shows before and they've been like, what's draining the power? 
We've got we've got real big power problems today, and someone's just sitting there with Vectrex. Well, is there um, like a flash cart or a multi cart kind of EverDrive solution for the Vectrex? There's a few. Um, one chap I know of is making. Um, I think it's called the Super Multi Cart, and he's trying to fit as many games as he physically can onto it. So it's all of the original titles, which I think. Um, Whichever company uh, originally created the Vectrex, it was GCE, and then um, it was a different one in the UK, and then a different one in Japan. But um, I think they, they licensed all of the games for free. They said basically anyone can copy them. So all of the original titles are there, plus lots and lots of homebrew going back from the 90s onwards. So yeah, those multi-carts do exist. You can usually pick them up on eBay, or um, but if you just join like um, the Facebook Vector, Vectrex group, Vectrex Unite, I think it's called, then you'll better pick up a copy quite easily. Um, Vectrex Fans work, Unite, that's him, sorry. You work with uh, VR nowadays. Do you think one day we'll see Vectrex VR? Uh, Vectrex has already got VR. Um, it was the first comp- the first machine I know of that had um, a set of 3D goggles. Um, it, it uses a spinning wheel and uh, it flickers in front of your eyes and it, it gives you the illusion of um, a 3D scenes i suppose it's not really vr but it was certainly a, a very early step in that direction the vectrex is doing everything it can at the moment so i, I think like the, the little chip is being pushed to the absolute maximum just to draw very simple stuff on screen so we probably won't see a full vr rig for the vectrex i i'm i'm looking at it now and uh yeah that looks pretty crazy have you tried it out the um no the i haven't vectrex? because they're, they're they're incredibly rare um there's one guy i think who's building his own so i might have to you know, see if I can find the, the um, good excuse to spend £100 on an um, unbelievably obsolete piece of hardware and buy one for myself to test it out, just to have the, uh, the oldest headset available for a console. I think it predates even Sega. It's the 3D Imager. That's, That's right, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that Sega then, actually. I remember us being at Revival one year and Ravi trying out the, um, the 3D glasses for the Sega Master System, then having to sit down for about three hours. He went green <laughs> after about five minutes on that. I, I should probably pick one of those up one day. I've, I've got a, um, a Virtual Boy, <laughs> which is really mm. cool. Um, I had to build my own stand for it because I just bought the bits from Japan. Um, the Virtual Boy is a tremendous piece of kit, and I really want to write it for it. But I'm probably not going to write a game for that machine because it's so hard to get hold of um, carts. Whereas, at least on the Vectrex, there's this whole community um, making bits and pieces so you can actually develop your own games for it. Yes, yeah, so obviously Player 2 was a very ambitious game you know not only being a two-player um game package but also having all those different titles on a cartridge have you got any plans to do anything like more ambitious or bigger or what, what's kind of your next plan with the the vector well, i'm i'm in my spare time i'm working on a um player one um which i figure i should make which is going to try and i'm trying to try and make as many decent titles for one player on the uh, machine and put them all to one cart same basic idea just cram as much stuff in there as possible but I'm starting with. Um, I'm going to start writing the big game first, and do it instead of doing it the other way around. Um, so I'm trying to make a, a full 2D platformer with scrolling and gravity and jumping and this sort of stuff. And it's such a pain in the neck. <laughs> it's so hard. Um, so I, I keep doing a little bit of work on it, and, and then coming across some horrible bug in my code, and then going, oh, "Screw this! I'm going to go back to coding on a 64-bit machine." But it's still sitting there in the back of my head as a thing I need to finish. So. 2021 might be the year for that to come out, hopefully, or at least for me to get the game properly underway. I've got things like scrolling, and um, so I've got a, you've got a, like a huge map, in theory, which can scroll on the screen. Because scrolling is a real pain on the backtracks. You, you can't draw too far off the edge of the screen. 
like you can with a sprite. You can actually damage the hardware, I've heard, if you, if you draw too far. So you have to sort of cut everything off. I'm not going to go into the minutiae of why that's a pain in the neck, but it's it's not a machine that's really designed for this kind of thing. That's why there aren't any big scrolling games of that sort. Well, there will be one day. Well, Robin, it's been incredible not only getting your um, you know stories of the BBC and the Acorn Times and PlayStation, but also this uh, this chat about the Vectrex has been very eye-opening. You know, Ravi's been talking to me for years about getting one, and you know, I think you've uh, you've definitely sold me on uh, <laughs> trying to hunt one down to add to my collection as well. Um, how do how do we get hold of the game then? If uh, people have got a Vectrex and they want to get hold of play, um, well, they just uh, go to jubbernauts.com, which is um, my badly named website, or send an email to jubber at jubbernaut.com and just say, um, just ask me if it's available, and, and I'll see if I can put one together. It's, it's, it's a very uh, cottage industry, so uh, it might take me a week or two to get the thing built. I'm like literally soldering parts together. Fantastic. Well, I'll put a link to that in our show notes as well. Robin, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your stories with us. It's a pleasure being here. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you.